Today we're in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Let me read this for us. This is what God's Word says, beginning in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we have opened your word now, would you turn our hearts to it, that we might understand it, that we might embrace it, that we might be changed by your very living truth. Lord, for our encouragement, for our edification, for our sanctification, would you please speak to us now by your Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke from the beginning, we've spent the past few weeks in chapter 8, where the central focus of this chapter has been the necessity of true and living faith in Jesus. This was the point of the parable of the sower, the little parable concerning the lamp, and even this little brief account just before this in verse 19 to 21 of Jesus saying that all who belong to his family are those who not only hear, but do what he says. This is what we mean by a true and living faith, trusting Jesus wholeheartedly, which evidences itself in a life of wholehearted devotion and obedience. And this morning, as we come to this next passage, Luke transitions to convince us why we should trust him so, as Jesus reveals the sheer majesty of his presence on that boat in the Sea of Galilee. And this is something that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again, that Jesus, because he is who he is, he is worthy of all of our trust and full confidence. Because truth be told, God knows that we are a very weak-hearted people whose faith and trust in Him is frankly fickle and unstable. You know, on one day we can find ourselves rejoicing with confidence, with song and dance that God is sovereign and omnipotent. But the very next day, or maybe even the very next hour, we can find ourselves turning around and asking, where is God? With all the fear and uncertainty plaguing us. You know, as believers, we all have this melodramatic silliness in us, you know, being tossed around by the winds and waves of this tempestuous life. But I think that's why we love this passage so much. That's why this passage is so outstandingly memorable of Jesus calming the storm, because in all honesty, we're not very fearful people who need to be constantly reassured that the one in whom we have trusted is actually worthy of that trust because he is the Lord over even the uncontrollable tempest. And this passage teaches us this 
most wonderfully childlike lesson that there is only one who is worthy of our fear. Only one whom we should fear. And that is the Lord Jesus who is Emmanuel, God with us. And to fear Him is actually our greatest peace and comfort. Now we need to begin by noticing a very important detail in this account regarding Jesus's truly human nature. Because Luke starts off by telling us that one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. He doesn't specify which day, uh, but remember when we we're going over the parable of the sower, we, we said how cross-referencing it with Matthew and Mark's accounts that Jesus had actually told these parables outside at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to, to, to crowds of thousands of people. And in fact, Mark chapter 4, in Mark's account, he tells us that this account of Jesus calming the storm being on the Sea of Galilee, it was actually that same day, but just later in that evening, when he set sail to cross to the other side of that lake. And that was after an entire day of teaching outdoors that Jesus embarked for the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. So what does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus was genuinely tired. Hence, we see this most spectacular statement in verse 23, that as they sailed, he fell asleep. The Son of God became extremely weary. He was exhausted from a long day of ministry that while on the boat, he drifted off to sleep. You know, I think one of the most important aspects of Christology or the doctrine of Christ, the theology of who Jesus is, one of the most important aspects that is often underappreciated or understated is not the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, but actually, the full humanity of Christ, that He is truly man, just like you and me. He was a real man. This is the mystery of it all, of the incarnation, that He was really tired that day. It was not easy for Him to spend hours projecting His voice from the boat to the seashore. All the thousands of people that were gathered there on a hot sunny day by the lake. He got hungry. He got thirsty. His legs probably got weak. His feet got blisters. Maybe he had a headache from being out in the sun too long. All of those same things that we would experience in real humanity. Now, why does this matter? Why do we care about this for this account? Well, it's because it shows us that Jesus, although the Son of God, he had subjected himself under the finite limitations of true humanity, just like you and me. And therefore, he had to live a life of faith, just like you and me. Strange, isn't it? Faith is trusting in God. And yet that God in whom we are to trust by faith, he came down to earth in humanity and for 33 years, he lived every day and hour in total dependence and trust in the Father's will, just like we are called to live. And again, I think many times we look at Jesus' life and ministry and we think, well, it was easy for him. He's the son of God. No. You don't understand the biblical doctrine of the incarnation. Though being God, Philippians 2.5 says, He emptied Himself 
and took on the true likeness of men. What did Jesus empty? What he emptied was his right, his prerogative to freely exercise omnipotence, omniscience, and all of his divine attributes. Jesus gave up the limitless free exercise of what was rightfully his as God so that he might live the true human life and acquaint himself with the true frailty of the human condition. And this is why we see Jesus saying things like in John chapter 5, 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing in absolute dependence on the father. And this is why we see Jesus in his earthly ministry being continually led by the Spirit. He put himself under the guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to his providential direction and instruction, just as we have to as believers. And when we see Jesus manifest his divine power in performing miracles, it's because those were the occasions in which it was the will of God the Father through His Spirit, to empower the Son to manifest the divine glory which He had for all eternity, for the purpose of testifying to the world that He is indeed the Son of God. But those were the occasions. But the normative life of Jesus during His humiliation of earthly ministry, each day was lived in complete human dependence on God the Father, just like you and I must do. And so the fact that Jesus was tired and fell asleep on the boat after a long day of ministry, it reminds us of how true that was. And the point of all, all of this is that here we see what a wonderful human trust Jesus had in the Father in that He not only fell asleep, but that he stayed asleep even when a raging storm had broken loose. Verse 23 tells us that suddenly a windstorm came upon the lake. Now the Sea of Galilee, I've been there before. It's a nice place. There's a nice resort that we stayed in as part of our little study trip that I could recommend to you. But the Sea of Galilee, it was a very large lake. It's kind of like Lake Tahoe, but a little smaller. But its distinct geography made it susceptible to a sudden, violent storms without any warning. The lake is about 700 feet below sea level with surrounding hills. And because of that, sometimes the cool air would, would, would blow down the surrounding hills and descend onto the lake. And it would meet the warm air just above the, the lake. And well, mixing together, it was a recipe for disaster, a, a perfect storm pun kind of attended, uh, and, and it would have an instantaneous hurricane of wind. And this was a common thing, and everyone knew that this happened often at the Sea of Galilee. But on this particular day, this storm that they faced was so ferocious that apparently the boat was being tossed around such that they were filling with water, and that they were in danger, as verse 23 tells us. The disciples were filled with the dread of peril. They feared for their lives. They thought they were going to die. Now remember, quite a few of these disciples, they were professional fishermen. Not only that, they were Galilean fishermen. Okay, this was their turf. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. They had sailed all over this large lake countless times. And for sure, 
they had experienced storms before, but they were able to navigate them just fine. I mean, that's why they were professionals. They had confidence. They were veterans. But on this day, the storm was so extraordinarily fierce and overwhelming that they absolutely lost it. And all of their professional experience was well, thrown out the window. It was neutralized as terror seeped into their bones. But through it all, there was Jesus in perfect peace, sound asleep, despite the deck being flooded with water. Why? It's not just because he was so tired, although that too. It's not just because he was a really good sleeper. I mean, I know some of you have apparently the gift of sleeping like a rock, and I envy you for it. You know, I mean, you could fall asleep even while bungee jumping. I don't know how you do it. I, I, can't, I can't sleep on planes for the life of me. But that's not why Jesus stayed asleep. It's because he had absolute confidence in the Father's will. And there was no concern, no matter how large a threat the winds and waves posed. He was the incarnation of Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, Jesus knew that the Father would not relegate him to a meaningless death in the Sea of Galilee. What's the point of that? He knew the mission for which he came and for which he lived, to accomplish obedience on behalf of sinners and to die as their substitute. And so he knew that his life wasn't going to end just then and there. And so whatever storms were there, regardless of the circumstance immediately faced before him, well, he knew with confidence in the big picture of the will of God that no matter what would happen, all that, would, all that God willed would be accomplished. And well, even if he were to die on this boat, then he would have trusted that somehow... In the Father's sovereign wisdom, that was a death that the Father would have ordained for him to die for his glory. But of course, we know that's not the case because the Old Testament had prophesied a very particular death that the Messiah would die. That is, to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But you see, in a real human way, not unlike us, although so much better than us, This trust and submission to the Father's plan gave Jesus total peace and rest in whatever dangers arose. He was never found afraid or in panic. Now there are so many things that this teaches us, doesn't it? First of all, that the panic which comes from fear is directly opposed to the peace which comes from faith. And this is why the fruit of the Spirit is peace. It's gentleness, it's self-control, all of these traits that describe a calmness of spirit, most excellently exhibited by our Lord here on this boat. But secondly, this kind of faith, which bears the fruit of supernatural peace, it is rooted in a total submission to the will of God for your life. That's the only way you can have peace. Look, God never promises that He will be faithful to carry out your will. In fact, if He does that, that's actually a bad sign that He has given you over to your depraved desires as an act of judgment. But God promises His children that He will be faithful to carry out His good and perfect will for your life, which most of the time, if not all the time, 
is not what we would plan. It's not what we would wish. But it is good. And it takes us some time to realize that it was good all along. But look, Jesus didn't have peace because he was under the illusion or the delusion that the Father would never let him die. No, in fact, his mission was to die a death worse than if he had just drowned here in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's a terrifying thing to drown to death. But doesn't that just go to show us how dreadful and agonizing was the cross on which he not only suffered the physical death, but he bore the eternal wrath of God? If he could have chosen, I think he would have, he would have preferred death in the Sea of Galilee. The slow death of drowning would have been quicker and less painful than what he endured on Calvary. But as his heart was set on Calvary, and every step of his earthly life was inching one step closer to the cross, all of these other distractions of earthly dangers and threats, well, in light of it, they were just distractions. He knew that the Father's will would be accomplished, whether in life or in death. You see, we need to ask ourselves, how much are we immersed and controlled by the thought that as believers, our lives are about His will for us at any cost? And as scary as that sounds, that's actually when we have the greatest peace. Because it's safer to deposit our full trust into the hands of sovereign wisdom and goodness Himself rather than into our own hands. Because notice by contrast, the condition and temperament of the disciples who had faith in God, but in such a small measure still, whose welfare and security was still largely upheld by their own hands, perhaps because they were the professional fishermen. They thought they knew better. And so we see their instinctual reaction in verse 24. Master, Master, we are perishing. Now Luke records this repeated cry to convey not only a sense of urgency, but a spirit of frenzy and hysteria. And in that panic, they cry out, we are dying, we are perishing. Now, if you think about it soberly, with the full picture of the gospel record in mind, of how we have walked through the the gospel of Luke together, based on all that these disciples have experienced thus far with Jesus, isn't this reaction a wee bit inconsistent? I mean, weren't they there when Jesus proved his mastery and dominion over this very Sea of Galilee, the same lake? When remember back in Luke chapter 5, he commanded all the fish to enter into the nets of Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And actually, it wasn't the worst time of day. It was the worst fishing advice. Hey, why don't you cast out your nets into the deep over there? Okay, Jesus, all right, whatever you say. And the nets were bursting because Jesus commanded those fish to enter. Jesus showed that he owns this lake and everything in it and everything happening on it. They obey his will. 
But instead, the disciples are crying, we're perishing. No, you're not. As long as Jesus is with you. But listen, even if you did perish, even if you did die, didn't you see him raise the dead man back to life? Back in Luke chapter 7? The son of the widow? And so the logical connection they should have made is, well, it's kind of scary, but even if I did die, I, I think he can work out a solution just fine. So maybe instead of freaking out, maybe I should just treat this like a nice roller coaster. I mean, the absolute worst thing that can happen to me is actually powerless against me in the end. So long as I am with Jesus and he is here with us. And what an amazing comfort that in the long run, the worst case scenario is a no case scenario. You see, the rational thing to do would be to say, you know, this is really scary. I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is that Jesus is on this boat with me and he has shown himself to always be in full control of whatever situation we found ourselves in. And so maybe, just maybe, I should put the onus of our safety and well-being on Him. In fact, as all this is going on, I see that He's still enjoying His nap and He's not getting up. Maybe we should do the same and unroll our sleeping bags and join Him because we're really tired from screaming our heads off. You see, based on all that they've witnessed of Jesus and all that he has revealed to them of his sovereign authority over life and death and even nature, wouldn't you say that the rational response is this poise of unswerving faith in the one who is so worthy of our trust? But instead, they were overwhelmed by what they saw with their eyes. And they were instead controlled by their fears. In Mark's account, he records them saying, not only we are perishing, but he says, well, the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care about us? Of course Jesus cares. Immensely. Indescribably. Why else would he have called you to follow him as his disciples? Why else would the Son of God spend this precious day and night with each of you, teaching you, revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God to you, giving you front row seats to witness the wonders of his glory, all so that you would trust him, be forgiven of your sins, and enter into that beloved kingdom of his? Of course Jesus cares. What kind of a question is that? But that's the thing, isn't it? It is an irrational question. And how often do we, as believers, frantically cry out similar things to God because our fears and anxieties have clouded our spiritual perception. And when we are afraid, rather than entrusting the heavy burden of sovereignty that we cannot bear into His hands, How easy is it for us to throw out the window all the truths of God that we have learned and studied and experienced in the past? This is such a testament to the weakness of our faith, isn't it? 
that when things start to feel rocky or turbulent, oftentimes the first thing we choose to throw overboard into the sea is the basic biblical truths of God's character, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his goodness, his unchanging love for his children, even when those children of his can't understand what's going on. Commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle wrote this, They forgot everything but the sight and sense of present danger. It is only too true that sight and sense and feeling make men very poor theologians. You see, fear makes us do very irrational things because it distorts our understanding of reality. This is why, all throughout history, tyrannical governments or oppressive regimes have always used fear as the means of controlling people. Because with enough fear instilled in them, you can make people live like slaves even though they're actually free. You can make people function in a very strange way that's contrary to the actual reality. Fear makes us lose our minds. And so here... Uh, to, to borrow the words of Ken Hughes, we, here we see that we, we have a tendency to abandon all spiritual logic in the face of fear. And that's precisely what the disciples did here, and that's what we do all the time, isn't it? You know, I know that for all of us here, myself foremost, we, we struggle with the fears and anxieties that clamor for our spiritual attention. And we must battle against it constantly by relinquishing our control and trusting in God. But I wonder how many of us today are not struggling with fear. Not because there is no fear, but because we're dominated by fear. Because we've given ourselves over to our fears. We're controlled by them. And so we just go about being tossed to and fro by every fear and anxiety. And we're practically governed by them. It's the primary factor that determines every decision we make. Whereby the the whole pathway of our lives can be described as a negative course. Such that we're always walking away from potential risks and dangers. And that's what dictates the trail that is eventually forced. As opposed to a positive course where we are walking toward with conviction and with trust toward the will of God by faith, pressing on forward as we discern His purpose for our lives, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and trusting that all these other things would be added to us. Now I wonder how many of us have have structured our entire lives around this single governing principle of minimizing risk at all costs as opposed to following Jesus at all costs. Because despite the risks that we must take in this life, infinite rewards are guaranteed to us in eternity. And these will never perish. And these will never lose their value because of inflation. Church, it is a fearful place. This fallen world in which we live. There are so many dangers, no doubt about it. They scare me too. 
And for this reason, God has not left us to ourselves to forge our own paths and walk according to our own wisdom. For our sake, for our peace, He calls us to stop living in the frenzy of always worrying about all the what-ifs and start learning to trust Him. You know, if you live being, being ruled by all of the what-ifs, you will never live in the reality of what is. And here Jesus shows us clearly the reality and truth of what is, namely that He is the only one whom we must fear. When Jesus awoke in verse 24, it says that He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Can you imagine that? An instant ceasefire. An immediate, sudden calmness. Now listen, as the text tells us, this storm consisted of the wind and the waves. And how the whole thing started was when in verse 23, a windstorm came down on the lake. Which, so the wind then whipped up the water to become the raging waves that it became. And so the wind was the physical cause of the waves. And so it would have already been an amazing, supernatural uh, miracle for the gusts of wind to suddenly stop upon Jesus' command. And then, as a result of that, the waves gradually subside and quiet down. But that's not what happened. It says that Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. And they both ceased. It didn't take a few minutes for the waves to calm down after the wind was gone. The water obeyed too. And so the waves, though raging and towering dozens of feet into the air over the boat, practically sinking the boat, at the word of Jesus, the waves immediately prostrated themselves face down. And this violent hurricane of raging waters instantaneously turned into a quiet pond without a single ripple on that pristine sheet of glass, as it were. Can you imagine just seeing that? Bam! I don't know. How does that even look? What would it be like to see this indescribable phenomenon? Well, I'll tell you what it was like. Verse 25, when they saw it, they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. When Jesus calmed that storm, the disciples were filled with fear, with greater fear than even the fear that they had of the storm. In fact, Mark tells us that although the disciples were afraid for their lives in the storm, when they saw the calm, they were exceedingly afraid, filled with great fear. Why? Because they witnessed a power that was even greater than the colossal force of nature. They saw the force of Jesus' divine nature as Almighty Holy God on full display by His absolute control of that which is uncontrollable. 
And when they realized that they were in the presence of the Almighty Holy God, there was the fear of God in their hearts. And any prior fear of the storm was just a trivial afterthought, paled in comparison. And that is the point, you see. Fear in and of itself is not inherently an evil exercise. Because it is simply recognizing that which is so powerful and overwhelming before you and responding in kind. And after all, all throughout Scripture, we are called to fear God and obey His commandments. But then at the same time, God rebukes us for being so fearful and anxious, as just as Jesus does here to His disciples. Why are you still so faithless? And so which is it? Where do we draw the line between right fear and wrong fear? Well, the answer is this. It comes down to the object of our fear. What it is that we fear. Whom do we fear? And we are called to fear only God because... He alone is the omnipotent, infinite, sovereign being. He alone is the ultimate power. And to fear the storm more than God is to elevate the storm above God. But He is the only rightful object of fear being in a class and category of His own. There is no competition. And so here, as the disciples were seized with the fear of God in the person of Jesus, you know, their hearts were actually being recalibrated, reoriented to the proper, orderly state of their souls. It's not that when they were filled with fear with Jesus that they became more in panic and in frenzy. That's what it was when they feared the storm. But they were left marveling in the worship of God. They never marveled at the winds and the waves. They were tormented by them. They were assaulted by them. But with Jesus, they were fearfully captivated by Him in awe. This is what happens when our hearts are anchored in the fear of God rather than in the fear of man or fear of world, fear of circumstance, fear of uncertainty. We exhibit, when we fear God, we exhibit a worshipful fixation on His majesty, which makes all other fears subside and fade away into the periphery. This is why to fear God is actually our greatest comfort. Because if you think about it, the very phenomenon of fear that we feel when we fear anything in this world is a sensation that comes upon realizing that you are at the mercy of something greater than you, more powerful than you. But what makes that fear such a dreadful sensation, such an unpleasant feeling, which robs you of joy, is that that more powerful thing, or that more powerful person, or that more powerful circumstance, imposes great threat to you. It doesn't feel safe to be at its mercy. Because we perceive that it is out to harm us and to take from us. I mean, for instance, when when you're afraid of a violent criminal, you recognize that they're in a position of greater power over you, usually due to the weapon in their hands. But the chief root of fear comes from knowing that they intend to hurt you. But someone else could have that same weapon. A law enforcement officer And you would feel safe because he is there for you to wield that weapon. 
to protect you. But you see, the fear of God is like that. To be at the mercy of Him who is merciful and kind. And what makes it so terrifyingly wonderful is that the one whom we fear is out to bless us, to give to us. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Wow, that is a big statement, isn't it? Wow, that should strike fear into our bones. I mean, behold, His authority and unmatchable power in judgment. But then Jesus immediately proceeds to the next verse. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And didn't Jesus prove this to be true on the boat? That he wielded this terrifying power that overwhelmed the threatening storm. And that not to afflict the sinners who were with him, but to save them from peril. William Hendrickson once said of this, that it is comforting to know that an outcry of human distress awakens the one whom a most violent storm cannot awaken. And isn't that what happened here on this boat? And only when they cried to him that Jesus awoke. And so here on this boat, do we not see the grace of God on display, which is most fully expressed in the gospel? That holy, infinite God came down as man to dwell among men, but rather than coming in the might of his judgment, he came in the grace of his salvation. And this stormy day, on the Sea of Galilee was such a vivid picture of Emmanuel, God with us. And Him being with us to be for us. The divine power of heaven exterminating the winds and vaporizing the waves but never lifting a finger against the sinners who are with Him, who are right to be terrified upon recognition of the holiness of His presence. And so on this day, it was the will of God to manifest the glory of His Son in order to demonstrate His gracious character that we might be assured of His trustworthiness and be reminded of the safety there is in fearing so benevolent a Savior and only Him. Church, we are such a frail fragile and fearful people. And as such, we need to be daily reminded and to remind ourselves actively of the spiritual logic that we are prone to abandon. It must be our continual habit to ask ourselves this rhetorical question. Who is this that He commands even winds and waters and they obey Him? Who is this to remind ourselves of this. And when gripped with fear, when we're overwhelmed by anxiety, we must battle for the sober truth of our minds that this is who Jesus is. And by faith, 
I am in him and he is in me. I am his and he is mine. Thanks be to God for that. And if this be true, what shall I fear? Whom shall I fear but him alone who is so gracious and all sufficient for me? So may God help us to be those who truly trust him so that we might relish the peace that comes from entrusting every aspect of our lives to his sovereign will. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word and that we can behold your person and your character and what a comfort that brings to us when actually that shouldn't bring us any comfort that we are sinners before a holy God but we thank you for your marvelous grace through Christ your Son who humbled himself He came in the likeness of one of us that He might win our trust and win our obedience and win our submission to Him in so happy a measure for us. Lord, we ask now that You would strengthen our faith and help us to always remember and ask ourselves this very thing. Who is this Jesus? And that You, by Your Spirit, would comfort us by ministering the truth to us day in and day out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.